This morning, we are beginning a new series on the book of Exodus called Be Still. For the next several weeks, we're going to talk together about how God is our deliverer, how God is the one that rescues us from trouble, how we only need be still and he will fight the battle. And I think especially in this time of uncertainty, this time um, that, that, that we're feeling that, that we must do something and we're not sure what it is that, that we need to do, um, that, uh, that, these, uh, that these stories and passages and verses um, will help light the way for us. Help us to remember uh, that sometimes we don't have to do anything. We just have to have faith that God is fighting the battle for us. And so this morning we're going to begin at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Uh, we're going to um, look at selected verses from the first and second chapter. Exodus 1, 6 through 14, and then 1, 22 through 2, 10. Hear now the word of our Lord. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, 
and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. The year is 1849. The place is Philadelphia. A small office building belonging to a man named Passamore Williamson. It's early in the morning. A delivery wagon pulls up to the side of the building and the driver knocks on the door. Package for Williamson, he says. And Passmore Williamson comes out along with two business partners, and they see on the back of the wagon a wooden box marked with the words, Dry Goods. Mr. Williamson's two friends pick up the box. It was heavy. They carry it into the building, and Williamson followed behind. The door shut, and he looked nervously out the window and watched as the delivery wagon disappeared around the corner of the street. Once he was sure the driver was gone, he and his partners took crowbars and pried open the lid. Once the lid was off, a large black man stood up and stepped out of the box. He smiled, put out his hand, and said, How do you do, gentlemen? The man was an escaped slave named Henry Brown. He had just mailed himself in a wooden box from Richmond, Virginia, all the way to the office of a group of abolitionists in Pennsylvania. It's an amazing story. See, Henry Box Brown, as he would be called from then on, was being rented out by a slave owner to a tobacco factory in Richmond. What extra money he was able to keep from the job, he gave to uh, the slave owner to pay him not to sell his wife Nancy and his three kids to another owner the slave owner took the money and sold them anyway. Nancy was pregnant with their fourth child. After this betrayal, he began to plot his escape. Henry Brown saved up what little money he had uh, to, to ship himself through the mail with the help of some friendly white accomplices. Slaves can't call in sick, so when the day came, In order to get off his shift, he poured sulfuric acid on his hand and burned it down to the bone. Henry Brown spent 27 hours in a three-foot by two-foot box, and he didn't make a sound. His improbable journey involved three wagons, three railroad cars, a steamboat, and a ferry. The box was flipped upside down several times, but he was never caught. But see, that to me is not the most amazing part of this story. What amazes me most is what Henry Brown did next. See, after he stepped out of the box and said, how do you do, gentlemen, to the abolitionist that he had mailed himself to, he began to sing. He sang a musical setting of Psalm 40. 
I waited patiently for the Lord, and He in kindness to me heard my calling, and He hath put a new song into my mouth, even thanksgiving, even thanksgiving unto our God. Withdraw not thou thy mercies from me. Let thy love and kindness and thy truth always preserve me. Let all those that seek thee be joyful and glad. Be joyful and glad. And let such as love thy salvation say always, say always, the Lord be praised. The Lord be praised. That's Amazing to me. What did Henry Brown thank the Lord for? What did God do exactly? See, Henry was a clever man who did a clever thing. He wasn't saved by an angel. God didn't send any kind of miracle his way. Henry Brown was on his own. He saved himself. So why did he feel the need to sing a psalm of thanks to God? This wasn't a miracle story. Tell me I'm wrong. This morning's passage isn't a miracle story either. There is, I can tell, God doesn't really intervene in any meaningful way in the events. It's a story about a clever slave doing a clever thing to survive. It's a story about a box that takes its passenger to freedom. Our passage opens with about 400 years of history summed up in a couple of verses. We're told that the Joseph generation settles in Egypt. They multiply and their fortunes change. Joseph is forgotten by the pharaohs of Egypt and they begin to oppress the Hebrews out of fear for their numbers. 400 years have passed. Joseph is as far removed from the lives of the Hebrews and Egyptians as we are from the life of William Shakespeare. 400 years. Only the Egyptians didn't have the benefit of history. There are no ninth grade English classes about Joseph. No Wikipedia articles. See, history in ancient Egypt was an ever-changing thing. Each new pharaoh tore down the statues and monuments of the old pharaoh, and history started over. The Egyptians knew nothing of Joseph, his brothers, or his fathers. And the Hebrews knew only the stories that they told around the fire at night. And the stories of their fathers and, and, and their father's God, they're just that, stories. If El Shaddai once came down from the heavens to mix it up with his children, he didn't do that anymore. Nowadays, they were on their own. They couldn't sit around and wait to be saved. They had to take matters into their own hands. See, things had gotten bad. To control the growth of the Hebrew population and and to deny them strong male leaders, the Pharaoh imposes a program of infanticide. He orders that for a period, every male Hebrew born will be thrown into the Nile River 
And it's in the middle of all of that that a woman named Jacobed has a baby boy. Now what to do? She hides the baby as long as she can. Easy enough to keep him swaggled up and, and pretend he's a girl. But after three months, it's getting harder. At three months, babies be, start becoming more active. They can lay on their bellies. They can kick and wave their arms. They can begin to smile and recognize people and objects from a distance. They babble and imitate sounds. They're able to play. Now, Jacobeg has a terrible decision to make. She can kill her own child mercifully, or she can risk him being killed in some cruel way by an Egyptian soldier, and possibly her whole family punished in some way. This isn't a miracle story. There's no angel who's suddenly going to show up and swoop the baby to safety. The Nile River won't part or pile in a heap to prevent the terrible law from being carried out. And no one is told anything in a dream. Jacobed is on her own. No one else will save her baby, so she has to. So she gets a box made of papyrus. Now I know what you're thinking. A box? You mean a basket? No, a box. See, the Hebrew word for basket is sal. Every time basket is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's this word sal. Every time that is except one. In this morning's passage, we're told Jacobed got a basket, but instead of the normal word, the word teva is used. See, teva is an interesting word. It's difficult to translate because it, it appears to be an Egyptian loan word, and it's only used one other place in the Bible. But even there, it's not translated as basket. Scholars more or less agree that a teva is probably a long wooden box. Now, what does that matter? Oh, it matters. We'll get to that. But for now, just know that the baby is put into a long wooden box. The box is covered in this black tarry pitch to waterproof it and is set on the banks of the Nile in hopes that the Pharaoh's daughter will see it and have compassion on the child. It's a daring plan. It's a Hail Mary pass, a last-minute gambit. And it works. The day is saved. The baby lives, all because of human cleverness. Jacobed didn't wait for salvation from above. She took matters into her own hands. This wasn't a miracle story. There were no angels or dreams or parged waters. I mean, what did God do? Tell me I'm wrong. You remember that verse in the Bible that says, God helps those who help themselves? I think it's somewhere in the book of Kardashians. God helps those who help themselves. All right, fine, it's not in the Bible. But it seems like it could be, doesn't it? It's the sort of thing we like to say because deep down we believe it. God helps those who help themselves. 
In other words, don't sit on your hands waiting to be saved. Don't wait for miracles and angels and dreams. You're on your own. If you want out of your predicament, you're going to have to find your own way out. You're going to have to build your own box. Now that may sound like a very unchristian attitude, but we've all thought that way at one time or another. Tell me I'm wrong. In the classic western Shenandoah, Jimmy Stewart plays a farmer named Charlie Anderson. Now Charlie's not a religious man. His wife always did all the praying and he never much had use for it. But now his wife has passed away. And one scene early on in the movie, Charlie and his kids are seated around the dinner table and everyone's looking to Charlie to pray which he does begrudgingly after being shamed. This is his prayer. Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested it. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for this food which we're about to eat. Amen. That's our attitude often, isn't it? God, we dig it all ourselves, but we thank you just the same. Why in the world should God get the glory for our hard work? Why in the world should God be praised when we deliver ourselves? Why should we call it a miracle when it's just clever people doing clever things? What does God have to do with all of that? Tell me I'm wrong. I'm sure you all, like me, are praying for an end to this pandemic. But when you pray for that, what exactly are you expecting to happen? Do you hope the virus will disappear miraculously overnight? Are you waiting for an angel to descend from the heavens with curing hand? Do you expect the tide, the tide of time to be turned back? Or are you looking for clever people to come up with something in a lab? We're in charge of building our own box, aren't we? God helps those who help themselves. We'll do it ourselves, but we thank you just the same. Tell me I'm wrong. I am, of course. I mean, you didn't tune in this morning for some kind of secular humanist diatribe, right? We're all we've got is not the gospel. There's no good news and God helps those who help themselves. No grace and build your own box. See, our passage this morning looks from the outside like it's another story about clever people coming to their own rescue, doesn't it? But if we look closer, if we look closer, we see that there is something more going on. Something that might transform the way we see this entire story. Let's take a look again at the first three verses of chapter 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him. 
for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed a child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Now, the writer is dropping some major clues about what's going on in this passage. But they're hard to pick up in the English translation. In verse 2, the NIV says that Jacobed uh, looked at Moses and saw that he was a fine child. But the Hebrew literally says she looked at him and saw that he was good. Where else in the Bible have you heard that? How about the opening chapters of the book of Genesis? God is creating the heavens and the earth, and each day he creates something. And then on that day, he surveys what he's creating. And it says, he looked at what he created. What did the Bible say? He saw that it was good. In Hebrew, it's the exact same phrase. God uh, looked at the animals and saw that they were good. Jacobed looks at the baby and sees that he is good. This is something the Bible does a lot. It's constantly using these repeated images and phrases to point backwards and forwards in the narrative. The Bible likes to draw these connections between events so that we can see how they're related. So the writers of this story want us to be thinking about the book of Genesis. He wants us to connect Jacobed's act of creation with God's act of creation. He wants us to think about what they have in common. Now what they have in common is what comes next. Jacobed gets a box and covers it with pitch. Remember a few minutes ago I told you that this word for box is teva? That it only appears in one other place in the Bible and there is not translated as basket? The only other time the word teva shows up in the Bible is in the book of Genesis. See, God is going to flood the earth and he commands a man named Noah to build a teva. God wants him to build a long wooden box that will contain uh, his family and two of every animal. You see how these stories are tied together? God created all the animals and humanity, and he saw that they were good. And when it came time to save the animals and, and it came time to save humanity, God told Noah to build a long rectangular box. He had him coat it with pitch. They got in the box and God himself shut the door. Then the box floated on the waters until it reached dry land. Their humanity was saved. Jacobag had his son and she saw that he was good. When it came time to save her son, she took a long rectangular box and coated it with pitch. Then she put the baby in the box and shut him in. The box floated upon the water until it reached dry land. And there, the baby was saved. See what's happening? This story is stubbornly claiming 
though it may look from the outside like a story about clever people doing clever things, it's really another story about God's deliverance. It's another story about God doing the thing he always does, making a way out for his people. So you can't see that from outside of the box. See, there's something that can, that can only be experienced from inside the box. When you find yourself in the box, you discover how little control you have. How at the mercy of God's power and grace you truly are. From the outside looking in, it looks like people are in control. But when you're the one in the box, you know you're living in a miracle story. This story looks radically different from inside the box. Imagine being baby Moses. Imagine being three months old, being ripped from the one source of nurture and comfort you know, and being placed inside this dark box. Imagine not understanding why it's happening. The feeling of sheer terror and abandonment as you shriek for help. And none comes. You have the awareness that that you're traveling somewhere, but you don't know where. Danger is all around you. You don't know what crocodiles and hippos are, but you know that every bump and thud represents something threatening. You can sense that you're moving, but you can't see where or how. You're being pulled along by a force beyond your comprehension as you cry out into the black. Your lips can't say it yet, but you're thinking it. Mama, mama, nothing. Then, finally, light pierces the darkness and you stare up into a kind face. One you don't recognize yet, but it has the kindness of a mother. And you hear a familiar voice in the distance. It's the voice of your sister. You've been saved. You don't know from what, but you have been saved. Now that is a miracle story. I mean, what do you have to do with that? Tell me I'm wrong. We learn something inside the box, don't we? See, once we're in the box, we have no control. The box is that place where human cleverness and effort end and reliance on God begins. Shut up in the box, we are carried along by forces beyond our understanding. We are totally blind to what is going on around us. It's the box that teaches us radical trust in God. As Soren Kierkegaard famously said, faith sees best in the dark. There's something about being in that box, that that place of perfect surrender, that moves us to worship. Noah walked out of his box and he offered a sacrifice to the God who had brought him through the flood. Henry Box Brown walked out of his and sang a psalm to the God who brought him across the Mason-Dixon line to freedom. 
from the outside, it looks like clever people doing clever things, but in the box, we discovered a power of God, and we can only respond and worship. Have you ever been in the box? Have you ever reached the end of what you're able to accomplish and endure and needed the power of God to carry you further? Have you ever had to surrender to a situation beyond your control and trust God to get you the rest of the way? If so, you understand what it is to have the lid shut over you and to wait in darkness. You understand what it is to, to see the floodwaters rise, to let go of the basket. And you know that when the night has ended and the light is once again shining overhead, it's a miracle. You know what it is to step out of the box and praise the God of the empty box. And if you haven't experienced that, if you're still clinging to the illusion of control, if you find yourself at the end of what you can accomplish by yourself, maybe this morning is the morning to surrender. Maybe now is the time to put your trust wholly in God. There is no other way. Your ingenuity and force of will can only bring you so far. At some point, you have to let go of the teva and let the waters carry it the rest of the way. The box comes in all shapes and sizes, doesn't it? Noah's box was big enough to fit the world. Moses was barely big enough for a baby. Jonah's box was shaped like a fish. Its walls were scale and flesh. Daniel was shut up in a big stone box full of lions. The Apostle Paul was cramped in a box lowered over a city wall. Our boxes, too, come in all shapes and sizes. All of us sooner or later find ourselves in a box where there is nothing left for us to do but wait and trust. It looks from the outside like we are in control, like we are rescuing ourselves, but nothing could be further from the truth. We have surrendered. We are totally reliant on the power of God. We are in a place where we can only be carried along by some other current, only opened from the outside. We are in need of a miracle. Surely you've heard the story of the Galilean peasant who went around preaching love and forgiveness. He collected a band of disciples around him. He criticized the wrong people and his life was cut brutally short. He was dead. 
gone. Nothing left to save. They placed his body in a large stone box. They shut him in from the outside. Now later people tried to say that some clever disciples did some clever things. That it wasn't really a miracle story. But those people never set foot in the box. And they never encountered the living Christ radiating divine power. If they had, they would have fallen on their knees and worshipped the God of the empty box. I mean, that is a miracle. What did we have to do with that? Tell me I'm wrong. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.